welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey friends, welcome to Awaken. Um, my name is Micah, if we haven't met. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series called, uh, we're studying 1 John. So I want to ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And they say this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. But it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Pray with me, if you will. God, help us to unearth the um, and be present to the living God of the scriptures, the one who reveals God's self through the words of these texts and these ancient scriptures. Help us to be attentive to our own hearts, uh, the things that we bring through these doors, and what you might have for us today. pray in your name. Amen. This text is a little problematic, right? Upon reading it, and at face value, what you have is a real differentiation between uh, the world and spiritual things, to lump them together, uh, and the flesh and spiritual things. So the world and the flesh are painted in this light of, of negative negativity, a very negative light, whereas spiritual things, things of God, are painted in a very different light and in a positive light. So you have the spiritual is good, the world and the flesh is bad. And we have to ask the question, is this what John's saying? Is this what John's really getting at when he writes this text? And if he is, then you get a teaching that is essentially be in the world but not of the world because the world is evil and the things of God are not of this world and so we need to focus on the things of God and not on the things of this world and therefore our love of God will be made known and our non-love of the world will be made known. So if that's what this text is saying, that's what the message that I would teach. I think this is precisely not what John is saying. Uh, specifically, that the world and the flesh are bad and that the spiritual things are of God. I think this is precisely not what John is saying. Uh, I think that what John is saying is that the world and the flesh are good. They are, uh, they're tov, which uh, is a concept I want to introduce you to. Uh, that these things are good and that metaphorically, uh, that the world and our flesh, uh, yeah, that doesn't work. Um, we have to ask the question, is this what John is saying? And if the answer is yes, then the message that one would teach from this text is that we should be in the world, you know, the classic cliche, in the world but not of the world. Uh, we are strangers and aliens, um, that the things that we should focus on uh, allow into our lives, participate in, are the things of God, and therefore inherently are not the things of this world. There should be a, a distance from us and the world. The, the physical things around us that we might experience, whether they be 
politics or music or culture or art or life or food or sex or whatever. These are things of the world, and in some sense, these are not necessarily things of God, and so we should be focusing on the things of God. So is this, in fact, what John is saying? And I want to argue this morning. I want to submit to you that this is precisely not what John is saying. Rather, John is doing something very different than that. John is offering us a, a very different picture of the world, one in which uh, the world, the cosmos, as is the, world, the word that's used here, and the flesh, the sarks, are not inherently evil, not inherently bad, and are not things that we should do everything that we can to distance ourselves from, but rather, world and flesh serve as a metaphor in this text talking about referring to something other than the physical world that we live in and the physical bodies that we have. Uh, in order to do that, we have to ask a couple of key questions. One, what is tov, or what is good? Tov is the Hebrew word for good. Two, what is shalom? I want to introduce these two concepts, these two Hebrew concepts of tov and shalom, because in, in, in doing so, we find uh, very, very important information as it relates to answering the question, what is cosmos and what is sarks? And then from that, how is John using both cosmos and sarks? So what is tov, what is shalom, and then what is cosmos and sarks and how is John using them? And then finally, what are the implications? Uh, what, what is the text implying? So that's where we're going today. That's what we're going to do. So first and foremost, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the story of creation, and in it we're introduced to a Hebrew word, Hebrew concept, uh, connected to a word that is tov, T-O-V, would be the English transliteration of the Hebrew word. And the word good shows up a number of different places in Genesis 1. If you remember the creation poem, God creates these things, and God says this is good. God creates these, th you know, life, God creates the, the plants, the trees, the animals, the whatever, and, and he calls these things good. Finally, he creates humanity. He creates flesh and blood, and he calls it good. This will become important more, more important later. So good is this Hebrew concept that runs through the story, and then later as the story progresses throughout the scriptures, good, this tov, keeps coming back. And we have to remember, what's it, what, how is it first used in the scriptures? What's the concept here? What exactly does good mean? And I want to I offer a, a rabbinic translation of this word good because I think it really does a, it does a great job of exposing and, and getting at the, the, the thing behind the thing. Right? If words cloak a concept or an idea, then good is a word that we use to describe something else. What's the something else? And, and here, is, here is an offering that I'd like to pass on to you that I've, I've received from uh, a person that I, I find quite reputable and uh, knowledgeable about the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew conscious, the Hebrew idea, and the Hebrew language. So tov. We find some keys for tov in Genesis 1.11, where it says this, that God made the plants and, and, and the trees, and each of these trees had seeds, and those seeds had within them the potential for the actualization of new life. Uh, then Adam and Eve are actually invited to protect and guard, shamar, uh, steward, take care of that which has been called good. So Adam and Eve have been enlisted by God, invited by God to participate 
in the ongoing process by which creation or humans, humanity, actualizes the potential of life that is embedded in creation by God. And when that happens, the Hebrews would say this is what is good. This is what God calls good. So the definition, or one I might offer, would be that the actualization of potential life embedded in creation by the Creator when it is called forth by the creation with the seeds of future life in it. So tov becomes this code word for this idea in creation that God has invited humanity to, to be the caretakers and the stewards of life that exists, as well as life that's embedded in creation. And when we bring it forth, when we nurture it, when we cultivate it, when we call it out, whether that be physical, emotional, spiritual, when we recognize the seeds of life and call it out, bring it forth, this is what the Hebrews would say is good. This active participation of humanity in the ongoing actualization of potential life. Okay? Everybody still with me? This is Tov. Shalom is what happens when this takes place. There's universal flourishing wholeness and delight between God and humanity and the world that we live in. When humans accept the invitation of God to participate in this way of life, this, this way of life that actualizes the new life that exists in creation or the potential for new life, when we do this, shalom happens. This is the Hebrew idea of shalom. It's not necessarily peace like the absence of war, but it's the presence of something. And it's the presence of a, a human population, a humanity that accepts the invitation of God to participate in the actualization of potential life that God has embedded in creation. When this happens, this is good. This is what the Hebrew author calls good. And when this happens, it enables and fosters shalom, universal flourishing wholeness and delight. So, tov and shalom. Now these become absolutely critical and important because we find that in the scriptures, cosmos or cosmos, the world, and Sark's flesh are spoken of in a very, very different fashion than they are in John's, in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 paints the cosmos in a very negative, in a pejorative light. It sets it up against, over and against the kingdom or what, what is love of God. And it sets up the flesh as in, in a pejorative light over and against um, things of God, spiritual things, the, the, the love of God, the love of the Father, or to be in the light. So to be in the light, to be, to be in the Father, to love God, to love the Father, is to hate the world and deny or despise or, at the very least, build barriers between the flesh and the spiritual. This is, the, this is what happens in 1 John. This is not at all the way in which the Hebrew Scriptures talk about cosmos and sarks. How do they? Is there proof for this? I would argue there is. Um, let's take cosmos first. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says this. 1 Chronicles 2, 29, verse 11 says this. Psalm 8, Psalm 24, Psalm 104, Psalm 19, Isaiah 42. They all do something very different than what John is doing with cosmos. And the way in which the Hebrews understood the world, cosmos, the Greek word for world, was that it was tov. It was good. It was something that God created and called good. It has the potential of new life embedded in it by God. And when participating in, in a, in a atmosphere of shalom actually brings forth new life. It's the work of God. It's the ongoing testifying of the work of God. So the world is not bad. The world is not in and of itself negative or evil in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Rather, it's the beautiful testifying action of God that we see and participate in. So what's going on here? How does John get to the point where he calls it bad? How do John and Jesus, well, let's, let's ask the question, how does Jesus even use it? So if the Old Testament tells the story of how, of cosmos, how does Jesus use cosmos? John, which is kind of interesting because later in 1 John, it's a very different story, but John, the same writer in the Gospel of John, tells a whole different story at the beginning of the Gospel. It's not until chapter 8 that there's any introduction or any usage of the world, the word world in a negative or pejorative light. John chapter 1. John makes it very clear that Jesus, the divine Son of God, comes into the world empties himself in a, in a canonic moment and in a canonic action, kenosis being the Greek word for empty, in a canonic move, God empties God's self and becomes incarnate, becomes present, comes into the world, the cosmos, 1 John chapter 1, or John chapter 1, verse 9. So what was once called Tov, and what once participated in the divine life of God, in a life-giving relationship the world, Jesus enters, and it appears in a very real sense, it appears in a very real sense that the cosmos is in need of divine reconnection, redemption. Uh, in a very real way, the cosmos is disconnected and needs redemption. First John, or John 1.10 makes this even more clear that Jesus was in the world, but it did not know him. So the cosmos, the world, which is a product of divine activity and was called Tov, good, somehow does not recognize the logos, the, the logos, Jesus, the word, from which it emerged. If Jesus, being God, was participating in the divine act of creation, then somehow John, John 1.10 makes it clear that Jesus comes into the world and the world does not know him, the cosmos does not know him. That somehow the world is in need of a reconnection because the very thing from which it emerged, divine life, the world doesn't recognize and doesn't know. 
In John chapter 1, the cosmos is painted as beloved, the beloved creation of God, and yet, at once, a prodigal child that needs to come home. Tov, Shalom, working together. The Jewish scriptures speak of cosmos. We'll take them one at a time. Cosmos is something that's good, beautiful, the, the, the work of divine life, the work of divine action. And out of divine life and action emerges the cosmos, the world that we live in. It's good, it's connected, it's, it's participating in shalom. John 1 somehow makes it clear that there is, while, while the, the world is still divine, a, part, a, 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 a work of divine creation, that it is in need of, of redemption. It does not know him. John the Baptist says that Jesus has come to save the sins of the cosmos, the world. John 3.16 says that God so loved the cosmos, the world. And in John 3.17, he makes it even more clear that Jesus came not to condemn the cosmos, the world, but to save the world, to offer the world new life. So up till now, the cosmos is overwhelmingly loved by the Creator. And, 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 and at the most, while still is an action of divine creation and divine life, is in need of reconnection and redemption. So this is this is how uh, cosmos has been understood thus far. What about flesh? How does the scriptures speak about the body, the flesh? Well, certainly in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve uh, are a work, a divine, a work of divine life, a work of divine action that God creates flesh and blood and breathes the breath of God, the, the ruach of God, the pneuma of God is breathed into Adam and animates flesh and blood. And so the, if one could certainly say that flesh, sarks, is the place in which the breath of God lives and, and animates, or it is the seat of the animation of God. Uh, sarks is not bad. Flesh is not bad. I mean, even in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel, God says that, that Abel's blood cries out from the ground, that something, a product of flesh, is, is the thing that cries out from the ground, and God hears it, and God stands with it and for it. God stands on the side of the <clears throat> those whose blood have been shed flesh throughout the Psalms throughout uh, you know I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made that humanity, flesh, sarks it's good uh, the products of flesh uh, the things that we participate in sex and love and food and the material things of this world are, they're, they're all painted as good, sorry, uh, tov. <clears throat> Certainly in the New Testament, Jesus comes in the sarks, he comes in the flesh. Second John 1, 7 says this, First, uh, John 1, 14, Jesus becomes incarnate in flesh and blood and lives and moves into the neighborhood. 
Jesus gives his flesh to eat. He, he, he uses flesh as a symbol for this new covenant and this action of God in the world. Uh, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, Sarks, in Acts chapter 2. So cosmos and sarks are not the, the, the overarching uh, language and disposition of the scriptures for cosmos and sarks is not negative, I would submit to you. So how do we get to John, 1 John 2? How do we get there? Where John says, if you love the Father, you do not love the world. And if you love the Father, you do not love the flesh. Rather, the things of God will last forever, and the, and the flesh and the world will pass away. How, how do we get there? I want to turn your attention to John chapter 8. And I want, to, I want to submit to you that what John's doing here is using the world and the flesh as a metaphor for something else. I want to submit to you that John is not speaking particularly about earth and dirt and you and me. But rather, he's setting those ideas, world and flesh, up as a, as a contrast to tov, to shalom. The things that Jesus comes to reestablish, that, uh, that he participated in in the beginning, and that Jesus comes to bring back, that Jesus comes to redeem. Because if, if in John 1 we see that the creation cosmos is in need of redemption, it's, it, it, it recognizes that Jesus is in the world, but it does not know him, that this is what Jesus comes to do. What John's doing is setting, using these words, cosmos and flesh, as a metaphor to contrast the very thing that Jesus is about. And he gets this from Jesus himself, John chapter 8. says that Jesus, Jesus says... Uh, I am in the world, but the world does not know me, and you do not know me if you uh, know the world or participate in the world. <coughs> the cosmos, and I would argue Sarks, here and later in Paul, serve as an opponent, and that which Jesus comes to redeem and restore. It's an idea that John is working with, and the referent is not necessarily the, the literal, physical, earth, dirt, you and me, flesh and blood. But rather, the things of you and me and the world that have been broken. That find itself in this state of brokenness. In a place that is not and never will be what God intended for creation and for the world. Jesus comes to re enact, to reanimate, to redeem, to create, and, and, and becomes the first fruit of a new creation, something new that God is doing, which is working with that which is here, earth and dirt, and you and me, and bringing it and offering a new way of being, a new, and so in that sense, Jesus is a proleptic, He's, it's a proleptic uh, move. Prolepsis is a Greek theater term whereby which the someone in the theater will come out prior to the, the show starting and tell you essentially how the story goes and how it ends so that you have a way by which to experience the play and the actions and the emotions of the actors with a, with a concept and a referent of how the story ends in mind. 
This is what Jesus. This is what Jesus does on the cross. Offers a proleptic. It's a prolepsis of what will be. All right, where death and dying and suffering and that which stands against the activity of God in the world will be defeated and will be at the very least annihilated <clears throat> will be done away with will suffer judgment of some sort and there will be vindication uh, and that the act of Jesus in resurrection becomes this proleptic move of God by which the, the veil is lifted back and we have a view into what how the story ends and now become actors in this divine unfolding and unveiling of what will be. So Jesus says this in John 8. John picks up on it, uses it, and then uses it again in 1 John chapter 2, where he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Do not love the cosmos, nor the things in the cosmos. If anyone loves the cosmos, the love of God, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. These are all singular, by the way. They're not plural usages, usages of these Greek words. Uh, and the eyes of uh, the boastful pride of life is not from God. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So this is what John says. What does John mean? I want to offer to you this morning that what John does not mean is that as people who follow Jesus, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And by that I mean we need to live here, but be complete strangers and aliens to the things of this world, to the physical, literal, material things of this world, the flesh and the blood, the earth and the dirt. That that to follow Jesus is not to set oneself up and to set God's people up over and against the world and the things of the world or the things of the flesh sex and love and and food and drink and but rather to stand with Jesus who comes to redeem and call out that which was once good and beautiful and right and of God and to offer those things back in the context into which they were originally meant to be. Things that God made for us to participate in, to care for, to steward, to be the ongoing enablers of Tov in the world. What does this mean for you and for I? It means that we become advocates for the world. It means that we become caretakers of the world, the cosmos, as John uses it. That there are parts of the world that are broken. And we should not be lovers of those things that are broken in the world, or those systems in the world, or those ways in which the world works. We should not participate in them, but should be people that stand in opposition to them, 
recognizing the goodness that God made the world for and to be people that enable and bring about and further the goodness for which the world was made. Not people who stand against the world and who take their hands off of the world and who don't care about or care for or participate in the world, but rather become people who stand with God for the world, which God made as good, which God embedded in the world, the seeds of life, and then invites humanity to call out, to actualize the potential for life. This is what we should be doing. And the places in which this is broken and fallen and, and oppressive and unjust, we should hate those things. We should not be lovers of those things, but we should be people who stand against that. Because that's what the cross says about the world. As it relates to the flesh, you and me, earth and dirt, and, and the... While there are parts of our being that are broken and fallen and have suffered the consequences of our choosing to live outside of God's intentions for us. We should not be enablers of that. We should not be lovers of those things, but we should stand in opposition to those things when we find them in our neighbor, but more importantly, when we find them in ourselves. And we should be people who are enablers of the good, the tove, that is in us and that is in our neighbors and we should be people who fan the flame of those things and we should be people who who offer the Jesus of the cross and resurrection that make possible the enlivening and the new creation that's possible for humanity now hear me say that those things for us as humans are not possible in and of ourselves we cannot bring those about. The cross and resurrection offer the way by which those things happen in our lives, where new creation grows and new life comes forth and the things of the flesh, which John refers to, the ways in which we manipulate and, and oppress and uh, uh, self-select, and by that I mean choose self over other, that those things that we do naturally that we stand in opposition to those and we receive the new life that God has made possible in Christ and we become enablers of that. And when we see it in others, we, we, we enable it and call it out and say, listen, what's true of you is that resurrection has happened and new life is possible. That's what's true of you. Live into that and, and then therefore recognize that you don't know old life until you've experienced new life, right? You don't know something's old until you've experienced whatever it is that is new. And, and until you've experienced that which is new, all that, you, all that old is is just life. It's just what it is. So to point out this is old life without offering new life, it, it doesn't really do any good because nobody has anything, no, ref, no new referent to make that which is old, old. It's just life. So how do we become a people who offer new life to those around us, to ourselves? so that we recognize that which is old, so that we recognize the lust of the flesh and the boast, the pride of life and the lust of the eyes that is not of God. So the challenge for us this morning from John, as I read John, is not let's set up a camp 
Let's be against the world. Let's be against the flesh and anything of the flesh. These things that John speaks of are not particular things. They're not, you should be against sex and, and lust and you should be against um, food, certain foods or, or, or alcohol or certain activities. He's not, that's not what he's doing here. He's not pointing out particular, a list of things that we should be against. He's using these as a metaphor for those things that stand over and against what Jesus comes to bring about and that which Jesus affirms, which is the world, which is creation. Cosmos and flesh, sarks. So, John offers, to love God is to stand with Jesus, who affirms and brings a new way of being human in the world and offers a new way of being human in the world, which doesn't deny the world nor deny the flesh, but rather participates in each through the lens of and from a position of redemption, the way in which it was intended to be. And when we do this, we participate in the divine life that God offers in creation. And when we don't, when we participate in the world and, and the cosmos and the sarks, in an unredeemed fashion, in a broken fashion, these things lead to death. Because that's all they can lead to, right? What, remember, what is Tov? Tov is the actualization of potential life that's embedded by the Creator in creation when, crea when the creation itself brings it forth. When we participate in these things, the world and the flesh, as John uses them, it's no wonder. All they can do is bring death. Because they don't, they don't hold within them the seeds for potential life, for new life. Pride, lust, gluttony, arrogance, selfishness. These things do not produce life. They produce death. So John says, if you love the Father, you stand with Jesus, who comes to not deny the world and the flesh, the cosmos and the sarks, but to redeem it, to participate it, to participate in it in a way that brings about Tov Shalom. And when we do, this is when the kingdom of God, when the rule and reign, when the hopes and dreams of God that God has always had for creation. That's when these things happen. When we participate in the flesh and when we participate in the world in these ways, as we stand with Jesus, who, who offers this new life, when we do that, this is the kingdom of God. And this is what is to come in full when Jesus returns, when God is in all and is all. If you read 1 John 2, 15 to 17, at face value, this is not what you get. But what, because what you get stands in opposition to the very arc of the scriptures and the story of God up to that point. And I recognize that this interpretation of this text doesn't present itself as 
obvious. But I think we have to dig a little bit deeper because the one that does present itself as very obvious, deny the world, deny the flesh, does not line up with the rest of Scripture and with Jesus. And so this is an offering. How to read this text in a way that's congruent with the rest of Scripture and with the way in which the Scriptures speak of the world and speak of, the, of humanity. That it's Jesus who comes, that in Jesus we see a God who comes to redeem that which is broken in the world and redeem that which is broken in humanity. Not, in, not as one who stands in opposition to, but one who stands, one who, one who comes to, to reclaim and redeem and restore. And that this is, this is the move of the gospel. This is the move of God. And this is the move of this community. I hope and I pray. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.